Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Welcome back from your weekend. So before, no, excuse me, after we decided to do this show uh, um, about a certain aspect of the gun policy debate in America, um, this morning, um, the news kind of coughed up a little bit more data for us. Uh, this is a CDC report, uh, basically says that uh, there's been an uptick in deaths from both homicide and suicide by firearm. It's, if you read the report, it's actually kind of, the d- data is actually kind of noisy, and it's a little bit difficult to tell whether this is a statistical aberration or uh, a really bad trend. I mean, it's not good no matter what, but uh, basically these numbers had been in decline for about a decade, and, and they've popped back up. And I, when I say the data is kind of noisy, it just it, this is not a really kind of, you, you kind of want to see a little bit more of a solid line from location to location. That's really not exactly the way the data works. But no matter what, it's not good. And death by gun is obviously the line uh, of death by gun uh, has essentially crossed the line uh, of death by car. Um, death by car, that trend line is going down. Um, uh, death by gun, doing the other thing. So um, it's none of it's good. And I'll just say one more thing before we get going, which is that as somebody covering politics, as I watched this election unfold, I really did become convinced that guns were an undocumented issue. They were a way, they were a much more important issue uh, in this past election, at least around here. I'm not an expert in everywhere else, but I could actually point to a couple of state Senate elections, which I think may have tipped uh, on the issue of guns, although it did get polled about. It didn't get didn't come up in debates that much. But we live in an era where moms and dads uh, are scared every day when they bring their kids to the school bus and where kids uh, and teachers go through lockdown drills uh, as just a very uncomfortable part of of their permanent realities. And that has got to weigh on people. And then you get you got Tree of Life, you get Thousand Oaks, you get these these stories that 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 happened so much there's almost no way to process them. So what happened was that uh, the American College of Physicians came out with a very comprehensive report with a very comprehensive set of recommendations. uh, And roughly about eight or nine days ago, a kind of argument broke out on social media where most arguments break out. um, And the NRA responded to this set of recommendations from the American College of Physicians with a kind of taunting tweet. There was a picture of kind of a nutty, goofy-looking medical researcher. I guess that's who that was supposed to be. And then there was this whole sort of stay, well, if you want to know the exact wording, someone should tell self-important anti-gun doctors to stay in their lane. Half of the articles in the Annals of Internal Medicine are pushing for gun control. Most upsetting, however, the medical community seems to have consulted no one but themselves. And the response to this was a pretty ferocious tweet storm of doctors uh, talking about what it meant to stay in their lanes, that their lanes, in fact, were full of gunshot victims, uh, that their lanes were full of digging out bullets from the vicinities uh, of hearts. Um, That's what their lane was like. And they were staying in their lane, but they weren't happy about what else they were finding in their lane. I hope I'm 
summarizing that. Anyway, we thought we would have a longer version of that conversation. Uh, Dr. Heather Scher is joining us, a radiologist from North Broward Radiologist in Florida. Uh, Dr. Richard Sidwell is uh, joining us, a trauma surgeon at the Iowa Clinic in Iowa and one of the co-authors of the recommendations put out by the Firearm Strategy Team, which is a work group of the American College of Surgeons. This is a different report from the one I was just talking about from their Committee on Trauma. Uh, and in studio, uh, a regular guest with us, uh, Dr. Harold Hank Schwartz. Uh, psychiatrist in chief emeritus now at Hartford Hospital's Institute of Living and professor of psychiatry uh, at the Yukon School of Medicine, um, because this has obviously a mental health and psychiatric dimension uh, as well. But um, Dr. Heather Shear, I'm going to begin with you and first of all ask if I summarized uh, that that's the initial flurry anyway of communications between the NRA and the world of, of people who care for trauma victims. Is that kind of the way it unfolded, at least to your reckoning? Yeah, that's, you know, that's what's started this latest round of um, doctors engaging in the debate about gun violence and wanting to address this as a public health issue. Um, was the NRA's tweet, um, uh, saying the doctor should stay in their lanes. It's really, it's funny, the dichotomy. You look at the picture, you have kind of this um, doctor that looks like Doc Brown or something from out of the, Back to the Future. He looks mm-hmm. like he's reading, like, Galileo in the picture on the tweet where they challenge doctors to stay in their lanes. And then very shortly after that, doctors responded by posting pictures of, you know, what it means to care for a trauma patient, what, the, what our reality is. And... Um, you know, there's no one who's more immersed and, and is more intimately associated with the toll of gun violence in our society than physicians right now. So, uh, Dr. Rick Sidwell, um, y- you're um, very close to this issue by dint of having worked on this report, but I'm, I'm guessing that the way it unfolded on social, social media is not a good place to have some kind of reasonable debate uh, about a complex issue about which people already feel quite impassioned. Uh, I'm guessing this isn't probably the way that you wanted this debate to, to take place. Well, and Colin, first, thanks for having me, and Heather and Hank, thanks for being here. These are these are important conversations. Um, the whole Twitter thing, that was not necessary. That was unfortunate because really the, the report, the report of recommendations or policy statement from the ACP, um, you know, that has some stuff in there that that is legitimate items for for discussion, and you may agree with it or you may not agree with it. And then the NRA, their their editorial that they wrote actually was a a, a reasoned response that you know had some arguments against the positions that were being advocated by the um, by the ACP. But anyway, the it was the way of introducing that report. Mm-hmm. Uh, of the stay in your lane, um, anti-gun doctors having, you know, a, a curious hobby, etc., that was so um, demeaning, and it, it just it highlights to me, it highlights to me that a, a complex issue like this, a gun, and I like the way that you say it, of of gun policy, not gun control debate, that this type of a conversation you can't do it. 140 or 280 characters at a time on Twitter, and so my real guess is that the the very policy or the, the editorial that the NRA was 
promoting through the through the tweet. My guess is that most folks didn't actually read the editorial because the the tweet itself was so uh, divisive, if you will. Right. So, um, uh, Hank, uh, I know that you regard this um, the the lane that's being talked about as a legitimate lane for people who are practicing internal medicine or trauma surgery or, or psychiatry. I mean, as a psychiatrist, what, what has this debate? What what has this set of policy questions meant to you? I mean, what's the I don't know what's uppermost in your mind? I guess. Well. Um you know, the trauma surgeons uh, and other physicians in the ED are dealing um, every day with um, the horrendous physical outcomes of all of this gun violence. And psychiatrists are dealing with, I guess, a somewhat less dramatic um, portion of the, the spectrum of harm, but, but one that is daily repeated in our offices, in our emergency rooms, and in our hospitals. And that is the impact, especially on children of living in unsafe communities, um, having unsafe uh, experiences, and experiencing all of the trauma that uh, would naturally flow from that. Um, and, and there are the elements of trauma, and then there are the long, long-term consequences that lead to school failure to aggression and and violent acting out of the children themselves and just a repetition of the of the cycle of of violence and psychiatrists see it as as well as surgeons and internists and we all very much uh, are in that lane um you know rick uh, i want to ask you and heather both about this um so uh, when I go to see my primary care physician, I think we've stopped having this conversation. But when I go in for a checkup, you know, he says, you're out of bike, right? Do you wear a helmet? That kind of thing. And I think once or twice he has said, is there a gun in the house? And the answer is no. And so we kind of stop there. But I mean, I would imagine there's sort of a protocol of questions. You know, how is it stored? Who has access to it? You know, have you thought about risks and stuff like that? But one of the things that the ACP report talked about was the issue of physician gag laws. There are physician gag laws, I think, in at least 13 states uh, that, that actually attempt to prohibit physicians from asking that kind of question. What's, what's your thought about that? I'll, I'll tackle that one. This, you know, um, my general opinion is that the is that is that the government doesn't belong in that deep of detail in the doctor to patient relationship. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that, that's my general opinion as a as a physician. Now, that said, I understand where some of the concern comes from, and it's. It's one thing for a physician to be talking with patient about legitimate um, health issues, and then it's another thing for physician to be interjecting uh, personal bias um, and whatnot. And so that's where the line has to be walked. And that truly, that that's a physician thing, and that's a, a learning thing that doctors need to learn through medical school and need to learn through their uh, you know, through their mentors, it's not something that that, in my opinion, that, that government needs to be involved in that depth of um, the doctor-patient relationship. Right. So you're saying that's a debate that can occur within the profession, but probably not government talking to the profession. That's, I don't know, Heather. You may have different 
different well, opinion on that, a different thought, but that that's my thought. Well, he- Heather, you live in a state that has probably the toughest and most tor- notorious set of physician gag rules, and I know they've been litigated, so tell us about that. Well, let, let me take a step back first. Okay. Let, me just t- let me just put this in perspective where I think doctors belong in this discussion with patients. So in the U.S. in 2016, we had 15,000 deaths in this country from homicide, gun-related, and 24,000 from suicide. Okay, so gun violence is a huge umbrella of problems. 60% of gun deaths are suicide. Think about that. And in the homicide umbrella, we have different, um, we have domestic violence is a big player, drug and alcohol fueled, uh, feuds, um, substance abuse comes into play. you know, crime-related, that's another category. And then the third category, um, which is very small, it's a couple hundred deaths a year, but that's unintentional shootings. And that's where, uh, you know, this started with doctors asking patients about uh, guns. It was, you know, largely the pediatricians in Florida in terms of their screen, you know, asking if there were choking hazards in the house, the bleach bottles were put away, if there was a pool fence, they would ask parents if if there were guns in the home. Because it's been shown that uh, guidance and counseling patients on safe storage of guns prevents gun-related deaths and injury in children. Um, the other context where physicians may ask about guns is in the context of dementia, mm-hmm. Alzheimer's, you know, where accidental uh, gun deaths occur. So I don't think physicians are just making small talk about guns. I think that you know, they're, it's in the course of their preventative health interview in terms of trying to prevent death and injury, particularly the pediatricians. You know, um, Hank, I'm guessing that if I'd said that I had a gun, uh, my doctor, well, I don't know what he would have said, but let's just say he might, he might have said, well, you know what? You get depressed sometimes. I've been treating you for 25 years. You know, you get depressed. Uh, you should understand that having a gun in the house, you know, may not be the best thing uh, for you on those occasions in which you're sort of feeling like life doesn't mean anything. I make, I'm exaggerating this a little bit for purposes of conversation. But I would assume that's a legitimate, that you would think that that's a legitimate conversation for oh. a, a physician to be having with me. When, when you're working with a depressed patient, finding out whether there's a gun in the home is actually a critical part of the assessment, and to fail to do that is to be practicing outside of the standard of care. You know, 50 to 70 percent, depending on the study, of adults who have committed suicide have seen their primary care doc in the 30 days prior to the suicide event. So imagine if primary care doctors, um, because, well, you know, depression and suicide, that's just a matter for the psychiatrists. And if something serious really starts to happen, fell away from ever inquiring when a depressed patient appeared uh, to them as to, as to whether a gun was was in the home. You know, the, the presence of a gun in the home is one of the most dangerous environmental uh, factors in the completion of suicide and the evidence that the gun, and what's the follow-up question uh, as to whether there's a gun in the home? A, it might be that it should be removed, but certainly it should be that it's locked in a place where one cannot reach it impulsively. And so many suicides occur within an impulsive 10 minutes of the first suicidal thought. So appropriate storage of the gun, removal of guns in homes where there are suicidal folks uh, are really critical. And that is, that, that's just an absolute part and parcel of psychiatric evaluations and care. 
Although, so Rick Sidwell, um, your relationship with guns is going to be a little bit different from probably uh, Hanks uh, and Heather's. And a lot of the conversation we're having has a philosophical underpinning to it, right? What are guns? Are they a fundamentally unsafe consumer product uh, that you should really worry about if you have in the home? Or, or are they sort of an article of American life that can be used for both good and bad? There's certainly a lot of people who want to have guns who don't want to have them in places where they've got to undo a combination lock and maybe do uh, some kind of number code on the hand grip because they think they have them in the home for personal defense. So I don't know. I mean, maybe react to this. It's okay to say you're a gun owner, right? I am. So, yes, I, we own firearms. I have them at my house. And in full disclosure, I'm, I am a member of the NRA, and I make no apology for that. It, th- those positions aren't mutually exclusive, though. So it you can be a responsible gun owner, you can be a member of the NRA, and you can still be in favor of things that we can do that make firearms as safe as reasonably possible and cut down on the, the preventable injuries and deaths associated with, with firearms. Well, anyway. yeah. Well, uh, maybe you could just say a little bit more about the the team that you were on. You, you. This is not, this is the American College of Surgeons. This was uh, a trauma report on guns. How was it? Did it say radically different things from what the ACP report said? Well, can, Colin, do you mind if I back up just sure. a little bit because you mentioned you mentioned just some of the different narratives, um, and I think that that's important for everybody to understand is that that. that Really, there are two dominant narratives um, held by the American people, and one narrative is that uh, firearms are generally harmful, generally unnecessary in our civil life, and that by the presence of firearms actually decrease personal liberty because of increased harm. And so people who subscribe to that narrative see the term gun control as violence control. There's another completely opposite narrative that people subscribe to where firearms are considered generally beneficial and, in fact, are necessary for personal protection and safety and that it's a constitutionally protected right. And so people who subscribe to this narrative see firearms as emblematic of freedom, and so the term gun control translates to freedom control. With these two broad narratives, the more that one side attacks the other side, the more it makes people entrenched into their own beliefs. Mm -hmm. What actually doesn't get talked about is that there's a big middle ground that that, that people agree upon. Mm -hmm. And in general, people can agree that uh, liberties are protected by the Constitution, that violence is a major cause of preventable death and suffering. And that working together, that we can do a better job of understanding and addressing the underlying causes of violence, and that working together we can make firearm ownership as, as safe as possible. 
Rick, isn't the middle ground bigger than that? I mean, I don't know if this is a middle ground or not. Six in ten people uh, in exit polls in the last election said they, they want more gun control. They want stronger gun control. And certainly when you poll on background checks, uh, on making background checks more pervasive, tightening loopholes and stuff like that, you get way over six in ten. That That's a consensus item, uh, although the, well, the pushback tends to come from the NRA. To To argue just a little bit, consensus isn't the same as um, uh, uh, compromise, and consensus isn't the same as majority. Consensus means everybody. Mm-hmm. That, that's consensus. And so 60% one way or another, that, that's majority. Right. But that's I'm, I'm saying background checks, you can get way higher than 60%. So it's with... It, it's, it, it's with this idea that there is a common middle ground that where, where, where there's some broad agreement about principles. It was with, it was with that foundation that then our, our work group, so our work group is um, made up of 22 members of the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma, um, 18 of the members are not only surgeons, but are firearm owners. And the idea with this whole thing was that firearm owners need to be part of the solution because all too often firearm owners are seen as part of the problem rather than the solution. And so we were tasked with, with what, are, what are some recommendations that can be consensus recommendations, meaning we all agree as firearm owners, we agree that can be made. And so that was the, where this work group came from. Our recommendations are, there are some similarities, um, some overlap with the uh, position statement that was put out by the, the ACP that started the whole stay in your lane thing. Uh, so there, there's some overlap that's there. Um, but some no, that's the ba- uh, that's the background. Of, all right. Okay. I'm so I'm I'm just Rick. I'm just going to pause this conversation yep. so we can grab a quick break. We'll come back with more of Hank and of Heather uh, and of Rick after this. So we're back. We're talking about the medical establishment's response to uh, critical issues in gun policy with Dr. Heather Scher, radiologist with North Broward Radiologist in Florida, uh, Dr. Rick Sidwell, trauma surgeon at the Iowa Clinic in Iowa, uh, Dr. Hank Schwartz, psychiatrist chief uh, in chief emeritus at Hartford Hospital's Institute of Living. So, Hank, this is something that you wrote about quite recently in the Hartford Current. I feel as though when Sandy Hook happened, as a journalist, um, even though I wasn't, I didn't go down there. I didn't see the bodies come out or anything like that. But just like staying on the air all day talking about it and then covering it for days and days afterwards, it really kind of scarred me. It was a really traumatic thing to just have those ideas and images in my mind 
so much so that when the Boston Marathon bombing happened not too long after that, I actually had kind of a panic attack, attack in the hallway out here. I thought, I don't even know if I can do this uh, again. But there's a way in which we may be becoming inured. You talk about massacre fatigue. You know, we had Tree of Life and then we had Thousand Oaks. Um, some kind of threshold, I think, was also crossed in the sense that uh, several of the people who survived Thousand Oaks had survived Las Vegas. You are now living in a country where you can survive, directly survive as a participant, uh, more than one gun massacre. So I don't know. A- as a clinician, what do you make of that? Well, you know, I think that it, it, it's interesting to note that when Thousand Oaks happened, it seemed as if it fell off the the news cycle. It fell off the front pages just a little bit quicker, actually considerably quicker than the massacre that just had immediately preceded it, which was, of course, a tree of life um, in Pittsburgh. I found myself wondering how that could happen. And at the same time, I found myself wondering when Thousand Oaks happened, how can we possibly pay attention to what has just happened when we're still reeling from what happened 11 days ago? I think what you're describing, the traumatization that you experienced covering this as a journalist, which is a kind of vicarious traumatization, um, is is happening within the news media. I think it's happening actually to all of us. You know, when Sandy Hook happened, it was riveting. There had been prior horrible massacres, Virginia Tech, of course, and Columbine. But it was possible then to look back all the way to the Charles Whitman Texas Tower Mm -hmm. shooting and conceptualize the whole course of events that had gone from, from Texas to Sandy Hook. Since Sandy Hook, it has become impossible. Uh, The the one incident occurring so rapidly upon another, um, you know, I write about massacre fatigue. It's a kind of compassion fatigue. It's a a gradual erosion of our ability to stay engaged, to to hear the names once again, to be, be as emotionally invested and engaged in what has happened as we were in in the last one or or the one before. Um, I think it impacts you as a journalist and other journalists. It impacts the physicians and clinicians who have to care for people after these disasters, and it's impacting us uh, as a society as we all do become somewhat inured. One of the really dangerous things that's happening, though, is that as we become inured, I believe that people who are on the edge, people who are on the precipice, are just becoming more and more disinhibited. There is, you know, the press calls it a copycat phenomena. I think of it as a kind of of disinhibition in which the social norms just change and it becomes more normal to be able to act out in this horrendously violent way. So we have these you know, kind of two competing or contrasting trends in which we can keep up with it less and less, but those who may be more likely to engage in violence are probably their predisposition is is just enhanced. Um, 
I call this the, the disinhibition of the disturbed. So, Dr. Heather Scher, you're a group of people. You're, you're uh, trauma surgeons, radiologists, uh, emergency room uh, doctors, and nurses. Let's say nurses, too. They really they chimed in uh, as part of this debate that was going on. And, and I think maybe one of the good things about a kind of flame war on Twitter, if there can be a good thing about it, is that you reminded the rest of us. This is something that you guys can never get in your to. It is so direct and so visceral uh, what you see on a regular basis. Maybe you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I've been, my, I spent my whole career in a level one trauma center, and uh, handgun injuries are as routine as, you know, just bread and butter uh, medicine in the United States. That's not the case in other countries in America. Um, mass shootings really strike fear in the heart of every American, and it's what gets people's attention. But that's a very small fraction of what we see on a day-to-day basis. Most of it doesn't even make the news. Um, I cared for patients after the massacre at the Fort Lauderdale Airport, which was a handgun uh, uh, um, massacre, basically, is what the weapon he had, and then also in the wake of Parkland, uh, where the gunman had an assault rifle. Uh, they were both they were both horrific. And um, you know, you meet the patients, you meet the families, um, and you're part of the community uh, that suffers. Um, after these instances, after the Parkland, uh, you know, our whole community, all of South Florida was really terrorized uh, by what happens. Um, you know, the, the societal toll is tremendous from, from the mass shootings. They're like acts of terror. Um, you know, Rick, I was teaching um, college undergraduates at, at the time of Parkland, which Heather just mentioned. Uh, and one of the things I, I could tell in this group of students um, that the response from the Parkland students was going to be kind of a major event in their, these college students' lives, because lives, they hadn't seen members of their own generation sort of come forward and say, look, we can't wait any longer. We can't, we can't wait for you to decide you're ready to help us or accumulate enough, enough agreement in a middle ground. This is something we just don't want to live with at the level that we're living with. Uh, and I don't know, what, you, what is your response to this? I mean, in the previous segment, you and I were talking a little bit about sort of figuring out what the middle ground is. There are people who just don't want to wait that long, and you can kind of understand that, right? Oh, sure. Uh, sure, I understand the, uh, the sense of urgency to do something. Um, we also have to understand that everybody's do something isn't the same for everybody else. And so we can't just do something. We have to do something that, one, everybody can agree with, and two, we have to do something that actually works. Um, we're, we, we keep kind of dancing over one of the, the things that is so, so, so important, and Heather's mentioned it twice now, and I, I don't want to at all reduce the importance of the, the things that we see on the news, the the mass shootings that we see on the news. I don't want to at all reduce that importance. But we can't lose sight that the real, that that's a, that's a, that's a small sliver of the real problem that is injury and death associated with firearms. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to tackle the big problem. We can't, anyway. I, had, I wanted to go back to something that, that Hank had said because I'm very interested in in his opinion on this about the the idea of 
um, compassion fatigue or or becoming inured. Um, one of the recommendations that we make in our report is actually for the media to not censor, but for the media to take somewhat of a an editorially muted approach to the coverage of these big events, specifically to help eliminate some of the the notoriety that um, the assailants um, may desire. Hank, what do you think? Is that our, I, I, is, is that so? I think. I think that's a that's a that's a complex question. You know, I, I served on the Governor's Sandy Hook Advisory Commission here in Connecticut, and I am reminded of how viscerally offended family members were every time the mention of that mass shooter's name was made, either in a public meeting or um, on the air. And I'm, I think we we need to be sensitive to that. At the same time, I think it's a complex uh, issue to try to control the way that the press can can report these events. As, as you yourself mentioned, you know, there's a difference between things we'd like to do and things that we actually can do. And one other thought I have about that is that uh, while, I, yes, I do believe that the reporting and the notoriety of shooters does compound the issue um, and incite uh, the next shooter, at the same time, I believe that as we learn more about um, the environment of the shooter and the life history of the shooter, and we're able to demonstrate, even retrospectively, as inadequate as this is, that we can at least learn about these issues, that that may contribute to the sense of safety that we as a public have. I'm concerned that um, if we stopped reporting in depth about these issues, that we would have um, an unmodulated contagion of fear, um, not modulated by in, in the way that information can help. There are so few things that really can help to restore our sense of safety, and, and information, frankly, is, is one of them. So I'm kind of torn um, about that recommendation. Right, Rick, really as sure. a member of the media, let me just say, I, I think that ship has totally sailed. I mean, look, if the Washington Post and the Hartford Current and the New York Times don't do curated, responsible coverage of this stuff, it's going to be done, but it's going to be done on social media by guys in Macedonia making stuff up and conspiracy theorists in this country. People are people would consume a tremendous amount of information about something like Sandy Hook, whether we did it or not. As it was, we've had to fight an incredible battle against these Alex Jones people who claim Sandy Hook never happened. We, we've had to produce a tremendous amount of documentary evidence just to fight back that notion that it wasn't a false flag in order to create create more of an appetite for gun control, that children and teachers really did die in that place. We also had to fight for records that the state didn't want to share that I think did uh, have the potential to elucidate this matter in the ways that Hank's talking about. Uh, I, I just I, I don't buy this whole the media is the problem right now. You could have made, maybe made that argument before there was sort of amateur social media, but not now, right? You know, I think that's right, and I would add that the number of incidents that we're having now, I, I think we have to escalate the way that we, we talk about this. We're having, this is equivalent to a ground war on American soil, and while it's true that you can't have a ground war without weapons, so weapons are, you know, clearly a central issue, 
you've got to have reporting about the war and reporting that tries to keep the record straight. You're you're completely right that um, the way that information is um, being is is dispensed and with so much inaccuracy on social media really requires a press report that is accurate and timely and informative and I think ultimately helpful. Um, I, w- I want to do something that I periodically do. Well, we've got a call from Zach from Woodbury. Maybe I'll, I'll start there. I'll start with you this way. So Zach wanted to know uh, what the recommendations were of your report. I'm just going to ask you, Rick, just in the interest of, uh, interest of time, in terms of, of the report that you uh, and the other 21 professionals were involved in, is, is there one thing that really jumps out at you? Like if I could hand you a magic wand and say, you can get this thing passed, uh, no problem, you need Congress, you need the president, you need a constitutional amendment, whatever. I, I'll get it for you. What's the thing that you wish would get done? Uh, so th- our recommendations, there's 13 specific recommendations centered around a- approximately 10 or so principles. I suppose, Hank or Zach, if, if you wanted me to pick one, if I could only get one of the recommendations, it would be for... Um, Nonpartisan, federally funded research that is done commensurate with the, the level of public health impact that firearms have. See a little, see a little bit more, so we understand what you're talking. So, about. if again, if I just had to pick one of them, um, the, the the research, so our our true knowledge into injury and death related to firearms is very small compared to our our knowledge our research into any other medical condition any other health condition there's reasons that we that that that, that is like that right now there's reasons that we have gotten to where there is uh, very little federal funding for firearm related research but if we really want to make evidence-based decisions about what our gun policy is going to be, we need to have the evidence. Right. So I mean, but that has to be done. That yeah. has to be done in a nonpartisan way. I right. have to underscore that. That's. I think most doctors would agree with that. You mm-hmm. know, you talk about the kind of the um, impulse to just do something. Well, we have to do something that works. Mm-hmm. And it's not clear what that is right now because there's just su- such um, a paucity of research out there. Since 1996, when the Dickey Amendment was put in place, really, we have a complex problem with gun violence in terms of all of its various flavors, whether it's suicide or domestic violence um, related, unintentional shootings in the homes. We have a, a variety of laws on the books, and we need to know which ones work. And you know, we have a billion dollars invested in the opioid epidemic for research. We have almost no money invested in gun violence with all these complex questions um, that need to be answered so that when we in, in, invoke policy that we're doing something that's going to be effective. Right. And I think that 1996 uh, law that you're invoking here, um, Heather, is the one that mandates that none of the funds made available for injury prevention and control at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention may be used to advocate or promote gun control, which, Heather, seems to have had kind of a chilling effect overall on, on the kind of research you're talking about. Right. Well, at the time when that amendment, it was kind of a reactionary um, uh, move by 
the congressman, um, they also cut funding for gun violence. They took the $2.6 million that was earmarked for gun violence research, and they put it in traumatic brain injury. So they said, uh, you can't use funds for gun um, violence, and we're, in fact, the existing funds you have, we're going to move it over here. So after that point, two thir- there's a two-thirds reduction in published papers since that time. Um, most of the most of the medical studies that are done, you know, are funded by the CD. Well, I mean, most of them, honestly, is 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 funded by industry, med tech devices, and and pharma pharmaceutical companies, to be honest. But 38% of uh, funding in this country is from the CDC and the NIH, and that's what would be the funding source for gun violence research. And that is that that's a vacuum right now. There's no funding there for gun violence, or very little. I'd like to add to that just for uh, for a moment. You know, sure. Rick, I think that the uh, position paper of the um, American College of, of uh, Surgeons is really quite uh, good, and, and it's quite reasonable in its uh, position of trying to seek compromise. But on, on an issue like this, I'd have to ask, how what kind of compromise can there or should there be to the principle that the that the federal government will not allow funding for gun violence research, um, how is that? Uh, how is finding some compromise there a reasonable position? That is such an outrageously partisan uh, position to have taken to begin with. It's it's not paralleled by the approach to any equivalent dis- death causing incident or or disease. So. Um, I, I, what I'm going to do is let that ha- question hang in the air for a second. Rick can uh, ponder his response. We, we've got to take a really quick break here just so we can get back and have a full final segment here. So stay with us uh, and we'll uh, wrap up this conversation. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, with help from me, Kion Wolf. The part of Bill Carey was played by Ted Nugent. On tomorrow's show, we revisit our conversation about the place of women in evolution. Now, back to Colin. That sounds kind of ominous, actually. Um, it's not, I promise. So uh, we're having a conversation right now about gun policy and about the medical community's response to, uh, to gun policy. I think it's a really good conversation, too. I'm so glad we got these three terrific guests uh, who are Dr. Heather Scher, radiologist for uh, North Broward Radiologist in Florida, uh, Dr. Rick Sidwell, trauma surgeon at the Iowa Clinic uh, in uh, Iowa, one of the co-authors of recommendations put forth by the Firearm Strategy Team, which is a work group of the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma. Uh, Dr. Hank Schwartz, Psychiatrist-in-Chief Emeritus at Hartford Hospital's Institute of Living and Professor of Psychiatry uh, at the UConn School of Medicine. So, uh, Rick Sidwell, when we uh, last were uh, uh, active here, uh, Hank was posing the question, how do you find middle ground in a situation where, you know, there's a a law on the books. I mean, you're a medical scientist, medical people, science people. They tend to like data and research and stuff like that. There's a law uh, on the books that, that inhibits that to a certain degree. I don't know. What is your take? on that well yeah again one one of our recommendations coming from our work group and again this is a work group of firearm owners one of our recommendations is that there is uh, research for firearm injury and firearm injury prevention and that that needs to be funded at a federal level commensurate with with the the burden of injury um, the our, our language, the, right before break, our language is very important. So the idea isn't 
to have, I mean, I, I get where the Dickey Amendment comes from. The Dickey Amendment says we can't use prevention money to advocate or promote gun control. Well, that, that in, a, in a sense, makes sense. We, we don't want to, or we shouldn't fund research with a presupposed objective to advocate or promote gun research. We need to fund research that looks into the root causes of violence, the how can we effectively store firearms, how can we do effective counseling and training, um, what are the effective policies of, that lead to you know, restricting firearms for violence-prone individuals, et cetera. Um, so yes, we need to do the, the research, absolutely, absolutely. Of course, a lot but of it people. Needs to, but it of, needs to be done in a nonpartisan manner, right? That's a lot of people would say that you're just you know, everything that you just said puts sort of toes on the line towards the kind of gun control where you, you ideas where you get pushback. But Heather, I want you to react to that but, too. Well, there's yeah. this fear that there's this slippery slope that you know um, that 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 the answer is to, to take guns away, and that's not at all the answer. The you know, these problems are very complex. Suicide, for example. You know, what can we do to curb suicide? Well, we need better mental health care. We need more inpatient mental health beds. We need um, long-term care for patients who are mentally ill and, and depressed in terms of, you know, preventing suicide. And then, then, then there's the gun part of the equation. You know, there's question. There's not science that shows. It do, are waiting periods effective, you know, to make it, um, you know, not an, an impulsive act? Um, would red flag laws where you have someone who's depressed and you know they have a farm, you're able to disarm them, would those be helpful? You know, th- that's just suicide. You know, you, you could, for domestic violence, for accidental shootings, all of the, there's just so many different policy questions in terms of how do we curb it? And the guns themselves are only one part of the, the question that needs, needs to be solved, you know, which needs to be solved. That is exactly, New Heather, you've, you've explained that nicely. That's exactly one of our recommendations. We, we do, we need we need good evidence in all these areas so that we can make an informed policy choice. You know, th- th- that's true. New knowledge is always a slippery slope in that we never know where it's going to lead. So knowledge about guns has really basically been withheld uh, by the Dickey uh, Amendment out of fear that it might lead down one particular direction towards gun control, suggesting that the researchers who would be doing it had uh, a bias or a predisposition when, in fact, those researchers are scientists um, who we would hope and presume would be doing unbiased research that could have led into all of the, 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 the directions of the things we just don't know um, about how to prevent gun injury and how to prevent the consequences of gun injuries. Heather, I want to uh, do with you what I did with Rick a little while ago and just give you the magic wand for a moment uh, and, and just a magic wand for a policy change, uh, something that uh, based on everything that you've observed and everything you know about this problem, uh, one change that would make a big difference. What's that change? You know, it's funny. I, I would, If I could only do one thing, it would be research also, hmm. and I would have funding for research because, like I said, doctors are very reluctant to get behind something unless they know that it's going to work. And while there's lots of good ideas out there in terms of how to curb gun violence, um, you know, we can look at states that have lower suicide rates and look at their gun laws and compare them to areas that have higher suicide rates and try and tease out, you know, which of those laws were effective. Um, 
you know, with domestic violence, with taking guns away from uh, people who are um, have restraining orders and temporary restraining orders against them. We can look at areas that have, you know, the law don't have the law and see, see if, you know, is there an impact? Um, you know, I, I would I would vote for funding and, and um, uh, you know, funding for research and research. Um, Hank, I'm not going to give you a magic wand, but I'm going to talk to you about something we've talked about a lot. I mean, not every one of these problems is a mental health problem. God knows. Uh, there's all kinds of reasons. Heather was talking about accidental shootings. There's all kinds of reasons that people um, die from gun violence. On the other hand, there's a mental health component to this, whether we're talking about suicide or mass shootings or, or whatever. Um, and it does seem as though the infrastructure that could deal with that is going away as opposed to being enhanced. Uh, absolutely true. Um, and I think when we think about the mental health component of this, I think we have to acknowledge you know, some shooters, mass shooters and individual um, non-mass shooters certainly uh, have mental illness. Um, some certainly don't. And many fall in between into an area that we would think of as, well, they're folks who are just not well put together or, or are disturbed. There are no short-term mental health solutions. There are no short-term new predictors of who's going to shoot out on the street in a gang or who's going to shoot um, in a mass murder situation. But clearly, both for people who are mentally ill and for that the vast group of people who have issues, the fact that the mental health infrastructure is fragile in America is an approach we could take for the long term. For instance, the number of psychiatric beds um, in America has diminished so significantly that people wait in emergency rooms sometimes for days or even weeks to get into a bed. Everybody who needs a bed in a psychiatric hospital ought to be able to get one expeditiously, ought to be able to stay in that bed as long as is necessary to treat the episode of illness and ought to have a kind of um, follow-up wraparound networks of care that will ensure um, a diminished risk um, from uh, in the population you know, over the long term. I'd add to that that there's an education and school component um, to this, which is to say that social connectedness, empathic connectedness, the things that we consider uh, to be a part of social-emotional learning, you know, so far we kind of think of, well, social-emotional learning is something that we give to kids who are at risk, who have special needs, um, or maybe we spend a few minutes um, with the class here and there, but social-emotional learning is one of the connecting threads uh, for our society. Um, empathic connectedness needs to be emphasized in school. All right. Uh, thanks. Uh, it's a good place to stop. Uh, thanks to Dr. Hank Schwartz, to Dr. Rick Sidwell, and Dr. Heather Scher. Thanks for this very good conversation. Special thanks to Betsy Kaplan, who put this conversation together. We'll be back tomorrow. We always are.